So um, I, I don't know if it makes any sense to be asking you because you got here today for Daylight Savings Time, but I'm wondering how many of you had trouble uh, getting up on time and, and getting through the, the, the morning routine an hour earlier than usual. I, I, I did. I, I'm not a Daylight Savings Time person. I, I don't like Daylight Savings Time. Uh, maybe it makes sense for farmers, but I'm not a farmer, um, so I'm not so clear on why I need to have Daylight Savings Time. And if it ever made sense anywhere I've lived... Um, it doesn't make any sense at all in Alaska. As somebody pointed out, here in March, we'll have the sun going down at 8. And uh, during the summer, we'll get that extra hour of valuable sunlight we need between 11 and midnight. So so I, I don't really see the value of daylight savings time. It's it's a little pet peeve of mine. It's not It's not a big deal, but it's one of those things where the effort that it takes seems to outweigh the benefit that it provides. So so it's a pet peeve. Um and unfortunately, um, it was a bad weekend to have daylight savings time because I had I had another uh, a pet peeve happen this week, which was a denominational statistics reporting. And if you don't know what denominational statistics reporting are, um, I think we've got a picture of them here. Uh, yeah, so so um, it, it it looks a it looks a lot like a tax form. And um, basically, in these denominational statistics, what we do is we keep track of how many baptisms we had this year for for uh, young children? Zero. And um, how many baptisms we had for grown-ups? Zero. And important statistics like that. It is, it is, in my mind at least, it is the consummate example of rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. It's it's effort that that does not pay for itself. There's there's not a benefit that corresponds to the effort required to collect it. And unfortunately, it's not just one denomination. It would be so nice to be able to point at one of the denominations and say, well, well, they're, they're all messed up, but this other one's doing it better. But, but no, both denominations do that, and so we get, we get a double whammy of deck chairs. And so that's, that's another pet peeve I had this weekend. And, and I'm sure I'm not alone. I'm sure we all have pet peeves. Some, sometimes they kind of cross into the territory of that's really something I'm angry about. And it's good to know that, that if things get you angry, there are things that get Jesus angry too. Um, in, in, in the, the, uh, the other building, the CE building, the Christian Ed building next door, if you, if you look by the, one of the, um, by, by the piano, there's a picture of Jesus, and I think that's the picture most of us have of Jesus in our minds. We have a, we have an image of happy Jesus. We have Jesus, uh, uh, with some kids on his lap and maybe some sheep and, and butterflies and birds singing, you know, zippity doo dah. Um, and, and it's a, it's a, it's a bluebird happy day. And that's, that's kind of our mental image of Jesus. And so it is, it is encouraging when we kind of fly off the handle about something to realize Jesus did too. Now I'm not saying that our little petty angers and, and things correlate to Jesus's, but it's, it's good to know that Jesus experienced uh, strong, angry, angry emotions as well. Um, unfortunately, uh, it's Jesus doing that, so it's something we need to take seriously. It's something we need to make sure that we're not the one He's angry at. So the good news is, the good news is that Jesus um, is probably not angry at the people you might think He is. When I was a kid, I knew who Jesus was angry at because one day, I'm, I'm absolutely sure. Um, uh, when I was a kid, one day as we left church, my mom whispered to me that the organist was divorced. And so I knew Jesus was upset at 
divorced people because otherwise why would my mom have told me that, right? So I knew for a fact that there were people that Jesus was upset at and they were divorcees. And it was only later on when I actually started reading the Bible that I learned that actually that's not true. If you read the biographies of Jesus, Jesus hangs out with all kinds of people who you might think of as sinners. He hung out with tax collectors. He hung out with with immoral women. He hung out with with all kinds of people who were morally compromised. And not once in all four biographies of Jesus do we see Jesus get angry at them. In, in a couple of places, he tells them, stop your sinning. But that's it. That's the, that's the most Jesus ever says to sinners, to people who are morally compromised in some way. The only place in all of the biographies of Jesus that we see Jesus get angry, you know, spit flying, red faced, veins standing out in his neck. The only place we see Jesus get angry are when he's talking to mean religious people. And so so what we need to do is we need to make sure we're not mean religious people. So that's what we're going to be looking at over the next couple of weeks during during um, during the, the season of Lent. Uh, because Jesus is angry, because this is a passion area of Jesus, this is a thing that, that really uh, sends Jesus kind of right up to the edge. It's something we need to be very careful about, making sure that, that we're not on the receiving end of that. But the the because it's kind of an unpleasant thing and we don't want to do it, um, we don't look at these passages all year round. So I figured Lent's probably the best time to do this. So that's what we're going to be looking at during Lent. We're going to be looking at this one passage of Scripture. It's from Matthew's biography of Jesus. It's one chapter, chapter 23. And in it, uh, Jesus pronounces woe on, a, on, on these people. We'll talk about that in a minute. And there's probably no place else in Scripture where Jesus uses the kind of language he uses here. This is, this is as strong as Jesus gets. Uh, maybe a part of John chapter 8 is equally strong, but there's really... Uh, at, at most one other competitor, and there's no place that's stronger, uh, the language that Jesus uses here. So what I want to do is just take a look at these two verses that, that we read today. Jesus talking to, to scribes and Pharisees. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. So what does he mean by that? First of all, what is woe? Woe is, is one of those biblical words, and we kind of think we know what it means. It's you know, woe is me, right? You know, we, we have an idea. We, we think we know what it really is, is a word that has no meaning. It's, it's a, it's, um, it is a, uh, a natural sound someone makes when they're unhappy. Um, in English, we would say, ouch. Okay. When you stub your toe, you say, uh, well, if you are in the Bible, you say, woe. Uh, we say, ouch. So what Jesus is doing is he's looking at people and he's saying, ouch. He's saying, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. He's saying, ouch to you, scribes and Pharisees. Who are the scribes and Pharisees? Why is he, why is he, uh, uh, saying ouch to them? The scribes are the, the professional legal scholars of his day. They're the people who understood the entire Jewish law. That would include what we think of as law, the civil law. Uh, the thing that says, you know, you can only go so fast on this street or you can, um, you know, go to jail for robbing the bank or whatever it is. What we think of as the law, but also the moral law um, and the the ritual law. The moral law is basically what makes God happy and what makes God unhappy. And then um, the ritual law is if you have a job uh, working for God, you know, in the temple or something, how do you do your job? What are the rules? How do you offer the right sacrifices and so forth? And the scribes, the scribes knew the whole law. And if you wanted to know the law, you had to go to the scribes because you couldn't get a Bible. And even if you could, 
They were um, they were so rare that no one knew how to read. There was only a small portion of the society actually was literate. So most people had to go to a scribe. And mostly they wouldn't have Bibles either. They would have committed it to memory because Bibles were expensive. So you needed a scribe if you wanted to know the law. And that, that's who the scribes are. The scribes are the professional interpreters of the law. The Pharisees are exactly the same except they don't get paid for it. They're amateurs. They like the law so much uh, that they do it for free, that they, they have gone to the trouble of studying the law, learning all about the law um, as, a, as an amateur thing because they love it, and they want the rest of society to love it. So is Jesus upset with them because they know the law? No. He tells us, why is Jesus upset with them? Because they're hypocrites. Now, what is hypocrite? Hypocrite is actually uh, another technical word. It, it's not anymore, but it was at the time. A technical, uh, the, the word hypocrite was the word for an actor. It was somebody who performed behind a mask. Have you ever been to the movie theater and they show you those two masks? There's kind of the happy mask and the sad mask, the, the symbols of drama and comedy. Um, those were the way that Greek drama was always performed. People would have a mask and then that would be, you know, Zeus or it would be, you know, Agamemnon or whoever. It would be the, the characters in the, in the play, um, uh, they would be performing behind a mask. And what Jesus is saying here is that, is that the inside and the outside are different. That, that what, what you see, what you show to the world is different from what's on the inside. And, and it could be in the case of what, what we think of hypocrisy today, it's, it's conscious. You know what, you know what your, your, the image you're trying to present to people, and you know that that's not really the inside, the inside image. In Jesus' time, it meant that, but it also could mean inconsistency. It, it could mean that, that you're just, the two don't line up properly. And so Jesus is probably not saying that they're fakes. What he's probably saying when he calls them hypocrites is he's saying, he's saying, you, you, you talk a lot about the law, but you don't understand the law well enough to be competent interpreters. That, that your understanding on the inside shows that, that, um, this image you show to the world as an outside interpreter of the law is, is not accurate. So you are a hypocrite. So Jesus says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. And then what is the complaint? See, none of you are scribes or Pharisees, so I know that that's not a concern. We could all get up and leave. But then Jesus goes on. He says, you lock people out of the kingdom of heaven. You are not going in yourselves, but when others are going in, you stop them. So so what does he mean by that? He means that because because of your understanding of the law, you, you have learned all 600 plus commandments, the do's and the don'ts, uh, you say, if you want to become uh, if you want to have a relationship with God, if you want to become a Jew, then you have to obey all these laws. Now, um, what we know historically, there, there were some people who converted to Judaism, um, but there weren't, there weren't a lot. Jew, Judaism is not really a proselytizing faith. It's not something that wants everybody else to become one because they figure if God wanted you to be a Jew, he would have put you in the family tree of Abraham. And if you didn't, then I guess we'll let you in, but it's not important. You know, God's got his own plans for Gentiles, and uh, you're not one of us, so that's okay. But there were procedures, and so there was a way that you could convert to Judaism. And and Jesus is saying, you've made that so hard that no one wants to do it. And then And then he says, you cross sea and land to make a single convert, and you make the new convert twice as much a child of hell as yourself. Well, we know that they didn't do a lot of that. They didn't cross sea and land a lot. It wasn't something that they didn't send out missionaries trying to get people to become Jews. 
So what is he getting at here? What he's probably doing is either anticipating an argument or else the, the writer has not told us the whole argument where the Jews are saying back or the, the scribes and Pharisees are saying back, yes, we do. We let people into the kingdom all the time. Jesus, you're wrong. And then they're pointing at some people, some prominent examples, people who did become Jews. Um, and, and there are historical examples. King Herod is an example of somebody. He was not Jewish by ancestry. When he wrangled the job as as king of the Jews, he married into the royal family. Um, he became a Jew. He went through the process of converting Judaism because he figured it would kind of ease ease his path as king of Judea. And so that made sense for him. And Jesus is saying, yes, there are some examples. There's some, there's some people who became Jews. But you have made it so hard for people to become Jews that the only people who will put up with your nonsense, the only people who will jump through all of your hoops are people who have mixed motives, people who become twice as much a child of hell as yourself. Jesus is saying that don't point, don't point at these few handful of examples of people who you let in because they're probably not good examples. So Jesus says, um, woe to you, uh, scribes and Pharisees, because you lock people out of the kingdom of heaven. So, does this affect us? Is this something we need to worry about? Well, that's something we, we have to really weigh, because the, the, hard, the hardest thing there is, is to figure out if you're being a gatekeeper. Um, the, the, it wasn't easy for the scribes and Pharisees. They thought they were interpreting the law. Jesus said they fell in love with the law and forgot about God. And it's easy for us to to uh, lose sight of what we're doing because we let in people. You look around and you say, there's nobody in here who who is offensive to God. You know, I look around, I know these people, they're, they're fine people. And that's exactly the problem. If you look around and you see people you like, then 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 you should ask yourself, am I only letting in people I like? Am I, am I somehow functioning as a gatekeeper? And, and I think the way we can, the way we can uh, gain perspective is to stand back and say, well, who's not here? One of the things I always have fun whenever I go to a presbytery meeting is I look at the bumper stickers. Okay, because I know what the politics are before I arrive. And, and I have yet to be surprised. Um, I don't see bumper stickers for some political parties, and I do see bumper stickers for other political parties. And it really doesn't matter what they are, and you can go to a presbytery meeting yourself and decide, but, but, but you'll see that sometimes the church can become a club of like-minded individuals. And so you should ask yourself, are there, are there a mix of different politics in our church? Because that doesn't guarantee that we're excluding people who have different politics. But it should at least make you scratch your head and say, I wonder if there's some way we are unconsciously sending people a signal that to to be part of our club, you have to share our politics. It's something we can at least scratch our head and say, hmm, I wonder if there really are any people with that political persuasion. We can ask ourselves, I wonder if there are uh, people who who um, have a, a different perspective on social issues. Uh, we can we can wonder about people who are um, of different uh, uh, races. We can wonder um, does our does our fellowship here does our church reflect the ages and the sexes and the races of the community around us? Since I just got done doing statistics this week, um, I know uh, I didn't do this part. Joanne did this part, um, but. I know that this church is about two-thirds women. 
Well, I checked the stats, and in this neighborhood of Alaska, um, there are 49% women and sorry, 51% women and 49% men. So we can look around and say, is there something we're doing as a congregation that is acting as a gatekeeper? What is it? Why is it that we have an imbalance of women in our church? And and I don't know what that might be, but it's the kind of question we have to ask because this is a passion area for Jesus. This is something he really cares about. 85% of the people in the Sand Lake neighborhood, or I should say the 99502 zip code, speak English at home. Is that the kind of congregation we have? And if not, why not? Is there something that we are doing that sends a message, like the sign at the church that said, no kids? Is there something we're saying that says, you're not welcome here if you're a person who doesn't speak English at home? We need to ask these sorts of questions. And of course, the real elephant in the room is age. Uh, there's about the same... Uh, here, I'll give you some more stats. Um, I was about to wing this. Um, uh, in, our, in our neighborhood, people who are... Uh, one in five people is between the ages of 18 and 34. We'll look around. I, I see someone who's about to age out here. Okay. <laughs> and actually, I guess two people who are aging out. But... But ask yourself, do we have one in five people between 18 and 34? Do we have 40% between 5 and 34? And are two-thirds of us between 5 and 54? Because that's what our neighborhood looks like. Jesus says, Jesus says, whoa. He says, whoa. He says, ouch. He says, what sorrow waits. That's the way one of the translations puts it. What sorrow waits. Why does he say that? You know, I think most of the time when we hear Jesus say something like this, our mind goes to judgment. And it's true in a couple of chapters, Jesus is going to be very strong about judgment. He's going to talk about sheep and lambs, or sheep and goats, and you don't want to be the goat. Okay? Um, Jesus Jesus does talk about judgment, but, but that's in a couple of chapters. Here, I'm not so sure that's what he's talking about. I think he's saying, what sorrow awaits? Because when you lock people out of the kingdom, you know, locks can be tricky things. I want to show you my gym bag. I got this gym bag in 2002 at the Orthopedic Surgery uh, Center of the Rockies where I was having my knee work done. They gave me this. Um, and um, I've been carrying it around uh, uh, since then. Whenever I go to the gym, um, I use this. I put all my stuff in it. Uh, you know, take the stuff out, get dressed, and then put all my street clothes in the locker and so forth. So I've got a lock here, and I know the combination to this lock. In 2008, I went to a different gym, and it closed in the middle of the year. And so there was a period of time when I wasn't um, uh, getting as much exercise as I do now, and I wasn't as as uh, fine a physical specimen as I am now. Um, but... But there was a period of time when I wasn't going to the gym every day and I forgot the combination. And I still don't know what the combination is. Um, I know there's a 2 in it, but I can't remember if it's a 2 or a 20 or a 22. I know there's, I'm absolutely convinced there's a 2 somewhere in the combination to the blue lock. And someday it'll come to me and then I can take it off. But in the meantime, a lock is a tricky thing. A lock can be a very tricky thing. So I know one combination, I don't know the other. And I think Jesus is saying, when you lock people out of the out of the kingdom, to ask yourself, 
Is this a place you want to go? Do you want to be in the business of locking the doors of the kingdom? Because because the people that you lock out may be the people that God is sending into your life to minister to you. That that when your life falls apart, wouldn't it be great if there was somebody else in the church whose life has fallen apart in the same way, who could come alongside you and say, here's what got me through. But if you exclude them at the door and say, we don't need people with messy lives, then then you are locking yourself out of the hope that God is offering to you. So when Jesus says, when he says, what sorrow awaits, when he says, ouch, when he says, this is not going to be pretty, is he saying this is judgment or is he saying, you may be sorry that that happened? How many of us think about our children and we say, we say, oh, if only, if only, if only they would have a relationship with God. And we wonder if, if only we could somehow convince them of what we've found then maybe some of the choices they're making in their lives, they, they wouldn't have to suffer the way we see them. And it makes us bleed, and, and we wish that there was some way we could somehow speak grace into their life. Locks can be very hard things. So when we look at these things, when we look at these dimensions of age and race and sex, when we look at politics and all the other ways that, that people um, might be excluded, we need, to say, we need to say, I don't know of anything I'm doing, but, you know, the data is right there in front of me, so I have to wonder, what am I doing? Uh, our, our church, like most of the mainline church, is shrinking. The um, uh, Nine out of ten churches in America, this includes evangelical churches as well as mainline churches, nine out of ten churches in America is either shrinking or else it's growing slower than the neighborhood that it's part of. So it's shrinking relative to a local population. And that's the reality of, of our denominations, both of them. They're both declining. And and I do wonder, when the population is increasing, when we look to Scripture and we see Jesus drew crowds, to ask ourselves, what is it we're doing, if anything, to exclude people, to lock people out? When I was um, when I was going to the, the gym with the blue lock, I started listening to a podcast from a church called Flatirons in Colorado, and you've heard me steal all kinds of things from from uh, their sermons. I've been listening to them now for six years. Jim Bergen um, absolutely, in, in my mind, understands the gospel and presents it very well. So if you want to hear a good sermon, log on and listen to their, their podcast um, and save me the trouble of stealing it. Um, so... Uh, so Jim Bergen is a great is a great pastor and and he's he's um, leading a great church. When I first started listening to that church, um, when I first started listening to their podcast, they had sixty eight hundred people. And uh, when I when I switched to the Black Lock a couple of weeks ago, um, they had seventeen thousand people. In six years, they tripled their attendance from a very big number to a huge, almost unimaginable number. They just opened up a second campus, and their first worship service at the second campus had 850 people in it. So I really don't believe that the problem is that people don't want to know Jesus. The church is absolutely uh, orthodox. There's nothing flaky about their theology. Um, I don't think there's anything wrong with the church. What I think there is is a relentless effort to identify the places where they are putting obstacles between people and Jesus. They say, they say, is our parking lot keeping people away from Jesus? They say, is our Sunday school program keeping people away from Jesus? Because 
we don't have the authority to keep people away from Jesus. And they make a conscious, everyday effort to say, what are we doing that's keeping people away from Jesus? And my guess is some of you, when you heard those numbers, you said, I don't want to be a part of a church with 17,000 people. Well, guess what? You're a gatekeeper. Because Jesus died for every one of those 17,000 people. There's 20,000 people in our zip code, and Jesus died for every one of them. So we need to ask ourselves, is Jesus talking to us? This is something he cares very much about. Woe to you, for you lock the doors, you lock the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your churches are so obedient to Scripture that they let in people like us. Despite our flaws and our failings, that you have maintained a church that is willing to keep us and invite us to be part of what you're doing in the world. Lord, we know that there are churches that that uh, exclude people, and we pray that we are not one. And so we ask that you guide us, Lord, that that every day in every in every area of the way that this church works and the way we work in the world, that you would guide us and help us to see ways that we act as gatekeepers, that we close the gates of heaven. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to see those and repent of them. And we pray, Lord, for the mission of this church. We know that there are 20,000 people in this neighborhood and that Jesus died for every one of them. And we pray, Lord, you would give us hearts to open our doors to all of them. We pray all these things in his name. Amen.